All right, you ought to clap for that. Isn't that fun? All right. Yeah, that's our good Cole doing his work. You know, I, I love that video, but I did tell Cole between first and second service, first time I saw it, last service, I said, Cole, you should have given me the heads up that I could dance. You know, because, you know, I'm like the boringest snapshot in the thing, you know. So I told Cole, next time, give some of us old people a chance to show that we have moves too. Amen? Yeah, yeah, okay. Hey, open your Bibles. The book of Ephesians. We're going to live in Ephesians this year. We're going to take this book apart, study it, ask God to work it into our lives. And uh, my prayer is that it will be a transforming experience as we encounter God through the book of Ephesians. I love the subtitle that our team came up with, uh, Your Life in the Family of God. As Ryan and I worked on this series, uh, we are so excited that, uh, that our series this year that we're going to be doing together is going to explore not just, not just what it means to have faith, but what it means to be a part of a family on mission for God and how those things come together. And Ephesians, you're going to see this morning, is going to explore all of that uh, with only the way God can, only way God can do it. So open your book to Ephesians chapter 1. Today, how far are we going to go? Today, we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to end with the end of the book. So I'm covering the whole book in one week. You believe me? Yes. Lunch is ordered for 1230. <laughs> Service is over at 415. So if you didn't get the word on that, I'm just kidding. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for this book and the chance to listen to one of these wonderful, wonderful letters that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write to a common everyday church in this port city of Ephesus as they tried to figure out what it meant to know this new thing called Jesus, this new thing called the gospel, this new person called Jesus. I pray that you would teach us the lessons you taught them because we too are trying to live in Encinitas here in North County uh, as part of your faith, part of your family. So teach us about that today, in Christ's name, amen. Every war that's ever fought comes with a high price, and because of that high price, every major conflict that's ever been uh, encountered in most countries, and especially in our country, is remembered with a memorial. Those memorials are all different, usually depicting some act of heroism, heroism using depicting some key event. I think of World War II, my dad's war. My dad was in the Navy in the Channel on D-Day. I remember that war. I think of the memorial to uh, Iwo Jima and the, the guys raising the flag. Remember that? And that, that great, beautiful statue remembering those heroes. Every war has memorials. If I go to my generation, my war was which one? Vietnam. Vietnam for many years was looked on as the war without a memorial, the war without a good remembrance, the war that did not end the way we wanted it to end, and often Vietnam vets came home feeling underappreciated. Finally, a decision was made to build a memorial to those ones who lost their life. There's a picture of it. Now, I remember the first time I saw this, I thought from this angle, so how much did they pay for that? I mean, where's the artistry? Where's the beauty? Where's the, where's the symbolism? Where's the meaning? It's just a big, flat piece of black granite. 
You see, the meaning in this memorial that brings people to tears and puts them in silence when they visit it is not this angle, it's this angle. Names. Not just any names. Specific names of specific people who gave their life in this conflict. Who were taken out by the enemy trying to accomplish what we were trying to accomplish. No matter what you think about the politics around Vietnam, around that conflict, this speaks to me. One of the things on my bucket list would be someday to go back to D.C. I haven't been there since they built this and see this memorial. But like most people, probably every one of us in this room, you actually know a name or two or perhaps a dozen of the names. There are 57,000 plus names engraved in this memorial. And the simplicity of what it speaks is people matter. People matter. But people give their life. People get taken out by the enemy when they go to war. So when I go there, I'll probably look for a high school buddy of mine I played football with. I went off to college. He went to Vietnam, never came back. So I'll look for his name. See, we all know names on the wall, and we all grieve that, and we all say, what a shame. And, but what if I were to tell you this morning that every week of the year there is another war going on, and in this war that I'm going to refer to in a minute, it was estimated by one recent study that there are 53,200 casualties per week. 53,200, bring that number up, casualties per week in this war, in this conflict, in which a very real enemy is taking out very real people, men, women, even children, as a result of this war. It's a study of the family of God. It's a study of the family of God, not even globally, but just in the U.S. and Europe, to say that in the U.S. and Europe alone, there are an estimated 53,200 followers of Jesus Christ who at one point identified as Christians, identified as followers of Jesus, who either have been taken out by the enemy by walking away from the faith or at least walking away from the family. Of faith. They no longer go to church. They no longer show up. To a large degree, many no longer would count themselves as followers of Jesus, or at least they're disconnected from the family. There's thousands of different ways that the enemy takes us out of the family. A more recent study by George Barna came out in 2014 estimating that if the younger you are, the more at risk you are in being taken out. Statistically, three out of five young adults who grow up in the church, three out of five, will disconnect either permanently or for an extended period from the family or from their faith. 
Another study by the Pew Institute came out in 2015, even more recent, last May, that said that the family in general in the U.S., that there are 8% in just the last seven years, there are 8% less Christians identifying as members of the family of faith than there were seven years ago. 8% drop in just seven years. And it continues. So the younger you are, the greater you are at risk, but none of us are exempt from this danger of this enemy. So why study Ephesians for a whole year? It's because we want to go deeper than we often go by a quicker study. We want to explore this book. We want to understand it because I really believe and Ryan really believes that our study through Ephesians can help ground us, or to use one of Ryan's favorite words, root us in the faith and in the family, and then what it means to really live that out on a daily level. So today, here's my objective. I want to give you the big picture of the book of Ephesians. I want to teach you the big ideas of the book so that you see the forest before we study the trees next week. Because if you don't see the forest first, you'll often miss it in understanding the significance of each tree as we begin next week to take it apart. What are we going to learn? We're going to learn three big ideas. Number one, that when you come to Jesus Christ, you experience new life. You have a whole new radical life that we're going to see in a minute in chapter 1 of Ephesians and the early parts of chapter 2 by God's grace. Out of that new life, we're going to learn you have a new family. That it's really not about just you connecting with God through Jesus. That's a part of Christianity without a doubt, but it also involves connecting you to a new family in which you are adopted into the family of God in a relationship with Jesus by His grace, but also with a relationship with a lot of weird people called us. Depicted in that opening video that Cole so creatively put together just to show the fact that, you know, the beauty of the body of Christ is our diversity, yet our unity of faith. We're going to see that in the study of Ephesians. And then we're going to learn in chapters 4 through 6 that you are launched on a new mission. And that new mission is to walk worthy of this new life, new family that you have. New life, new family, new mission. And that new mission is to walk worthy. Chapter 4, verse 1 captures it. So let's let's start there. Let's go to the very middle of the book. Open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get in the habit of bringing one. Or if you have an iPad Bible, open it up. But you know something? I'm kind of becoming more and more of a fan of old school Bibles. Uh, I like old school Bibles. It's easier for me to write in them than it is my iPad. But you can use either. We're okay with that. But whatever you use, get used to handling the book. All right? So bring it, open it, because without that, I can't really help you to go deeper. New family, new life, new family, new mission. The dividing point in the book is chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, it means to beg you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In other words, chapters 1 through 3 are going to give us the calling with which you've been called. What's it mean to have new life, new family? And then chapters 4 through 6 are going to tell us how to walk in a way that really matches who you are, a way that's worthy of that. Not that you earn chapters 1 through 3. One of the things we're going to see is chapters 1 through 3 are all the blessings of knowing Jesus Christ. They're all by the grace of God. You don't earn any of them, all right? But you're brought into this new family, and then he wants us to live differently. Key word in the verse is this, walk. Walk in a manner worthy. And I love the fact there are other places... I love the fact he uses the word walk, not run, not sprint, not be a a superstar marathoner, 
He just says, just walk with Jesus. Walk worthy. Anytime you see the word walk, it often is used in Scripture to, uh, to denote that simple daily steps of obedience. It's walking daily in the power of God's Spirit, following His, will, His Word and His will, and just walking daily with God. It's one step at a time. And the cool thing about that is that tells me Ephesians is not for superstars. Ephesians is for everyone. Because some of you may say, hey, you know, spiritually, I don't know if I'm a spiritual marathoner or a spiritual sprinter. I'm not going to break records and how fast I do something for God or how long. You know, but you know something? I can walk one step at a time with Jesus. And that's what Ephesians is going to tell us how to do. So let's take it apart. Chapters 1 through 3, two big sections. I've given you an outline. If you look at it, it'll make a lot more sense today. Here we go. Beginning one, welcome to the family, chapters one through three. And chapters one through three are going to break into two big ideas. Meet the new you, chapters one to the midpoint of chapter two, and then meet the new family, meet the clan. You know, one of the cool things is that it's great to be family. In fact, I just got to digress here just a little bit. My wife is sitting down here with a couple very attractive older adults. Who are these? Yeah, it's her parents. Yeah. So... Here are the great-grandparents of my grandkids. And uh, so Charlie and Patty are with us for a few days. You ought to get to know them. But it's great to be connected to family. See, family matters, not just in physical life, but it matters in terms of our spiritual life. So these two sections, let me break them down. Number one, meet the new you. What do we learn? Three big ideas. One is it's all the amazing work of God. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Listen to the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, because of you just placing your faith in Christ, these things are true of you. Just as he chose you, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's a mystery we're going to come to next week. Before the world was even formed, God in a mysterious way chose us to be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus to Himself. So the imagery here is you are adopted by your Heavenly Father. That He chose you. He adopted you. And He did it knowing everything about you. You know, when people adopt a baby, one of the things they do, they probably have great visions of how cool it would be to have this baby. And they adopt a baby. What if you knew everything that kid would ever do to hurt you, wound you, disappoint you, disappoint God, whatever, would you still adopt that little one? Well, I'd like to think so. But God adopted us, knowing everything there was to know about us, the good, bad, and the ugly. And He chose you. We're going to study that next week. Don't don't miss that. Not only are you chosen by the Father, but in verse 7 He shifts to the work of the Son, in Him that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He gave us a little bit of. Is that what it says? You better watch your Bibles. I love this next phrase. Which He lavished on us. He says, according to the riches of His grace. The riches of grace which He lavished on us. I mean, the words here are, are, are rich words. They're, they're abundant words. They're words that say, we don't just taste a little bit of grace. 
that when it comes to our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God has lavished us with grace. Now that ought to get you excited. If you don't get excited about grace going through this study with me and with Ryan, you are not listening. Because God's grace is just going to be abundant through the whole thing. Not only are you adopted by the Father, redeemed by the Son, the Holy Spirit, third part of the Trinity, wanted in on the action, so you are sealed by the Spirit. Verse 13, look at verse 13. For you have been called, uh, excuse me, look at verse 13. It says, in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel, having also believed, so he's clear, this is not something that happens to all of humanity, this is, happens to those who believe, who come to faith in Christ, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our future inheritance. So the guarantee that you will experience all the other riches of your inheritance in Christ for eternity is guaranteed by the God's Spirit that He sends to live in you and me. We're going to have a whole week just to focus on that in three weeks. So what we see is this amazing work of God. And by the way, at the end of each one of these, I'll come back to this later in the outline, but he uses the same phrase. He says, the Father adopts you that it might result in the praise of the glory of His grace. The Son redeems you through the cross that it might result in the, in the, in the uh, praise of the glory of His grace. And then he says, and the Spirit seals you and gives you life, look at it in verse 14, to the praise of His glory to the praise of the glory of God, to the praise of the glory of His grace. So the reality is the whole story of how Jesus and how God through the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit brings you new life is all because you get excited. It's so that you and I will praise or speak about the glorious grace of God because it's not about what we do for Him, it's about what He did for us. And then to drive that home, go to chapter 2 with me. Chapter 2 begins to lay out how it's all done by His grace as well. But before that, there's sandwiched in there this awesome prayer. I call it the Father's dream. It's in Ephesians 1, 15-23. And it's God having a dream for you. Now, let me just give you a sample from the dream. Because this shows you the heart of God. Why does God want to bring you to life in Christ? Oh, pick it up in verse uh, 16, 17. Pick it up in verse 17. He, he wants it so that, God, uh, so that God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Oh, I pray that your eyes might be enlightened. In other words, that your soul would, would see spiritual truth that your eyes, your heart would be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us. So we're going to study one week, four weeks from now, that prayer. Because it's like getting a snapshot into the heart of God. This is what God wants to do. And at the heart of it is this concept. It's not so much about God wanting to do something through us it's not so much about god wanting us to go somewhere it's about god wanting us to know someone it's not so much about us as a church knowing or achieving or going somewhere it's about knowing someone he says i i i share all this that 
I pray that you might have wisdom and knowledge and an understanding of the person of God, the person of Jesus Christ, of His glorious grace, of who He is and what He did, and, and, and that it's about knowing Jesus. It's about knowing truth that points us to Jesus. And then in chapter 2, I've already mentioned, it's all by His grace. That is what I mean by new life. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, adopted, redeemed, sealed, secured. Why? So that you might know the truth about God and you might know God and walk with God so that you might uh, experience the power of God in your life. That's the dream. That's why this book is written. That's why God gave us Ephesians. And then to be reminded, you know something? It's all by His grace. By grace, you are saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the what? Gift of God. So that we might live and serve Him. Verse 10. Let me pause for a second before I transition to the second half of this uh, front end of Ephesians. And let me return to my opening illustration. If you're in warfare, who... What soldier in, in, in a conflict is at greatest risk of being taken out by the enemy? Who, who would be? Front line? Okay, front line's a good answer, but more specific. Infantry, that's a great category, but get more specific. Which infantry is at greatest risk? Huh? The one who's alone. The one who gets separated from his buddies. The one who gets off and thinking, I don't really need anybody to watch my backside. I can, you know, I got God. I'm just going to serve God and go into the warfare alone. See, the one who's the greatest risk is not even the one on the front line. It's the one who's separated from the front line. It's the one that gets off and lost or thinks they can just go it alone. That's the one who's at greatest risk. We see it all over the world in all kinds of different ways. We go to Africa and occasionally we get a, a free day and we're able to go see some of the wildlife in Africa and, 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 and you start watching the lions and how they hunt and, and, uh, and what you realize, they don't try to take down a herd, they take down the one they can separate out of the herd. And then they pounce. And then they have dinner. See, it's the one that they separate out who's at greatest risk. And that's one reason why we want to be a, a church family to realize that Ephesians immediately after saying, wow, you got new life, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. we got a new dream for you. we got new grace to give to you. And then immediately says, and by the way, you need a new family. And this is often not talked about as much in our culture because of our American idealism. Or, uh, let me change that. Our American individualism that's built into our culture. Because we believe in the... You know, in the, in the John Wayne, um, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, mount up and charge the enemy all by yourself. And you can do it if you just, you know, that's, that's a movie from my era, right? I'm probably missing some of you who are younger. I mean, we still remember John Wayne. Any John Wayne fans here? Yeah, I like the Duke. I like the Duke. You know, but sometimes the Duke was stupid, you know, because he, he thought, I can charge all those bad guys. Now, in the movies, you do that. And except for True Grit, he survived. But, you know, <laughs> but, but, but most of the time he survived. But that's not how it goes down. And that's why he moves into chapter 2, verse 11, through the end of chapter 3 to say, you need a new family. And this new family is described. Let me give you a couple verses. He says this, 
Oh, pick it up in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made both different groups, meaning Jew and Gentile back then, one group. And he broke down the barrier or the dividing wall between them by abolishing uh, in his death, that is in the death of Christ, in his flesh, the enmity, the, 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 the warring between these groups. Why does he do that? So that in Christ, he might make the two different groups into one new man, establishing peace, that he might reconcile both to be one body to God through the cross. So he takes all these diverse cultures, diverse peoples, Jew, Gentile that couldn't get along, and through commonality in Jesus Christ, he says there is not multiple bodies of Christ, there's one body of Christ. And if I were to summarize it, I'll show you a phrase. It is a global, we are united in a global family of God, a movement on mission for Jesus Christ. That's what the church is to be. That's us. That's you. So see, in America, we think, well, I go to church because I want a relationship with God. You know, which, by the way, that language is seldom used in Scripture. You come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's true. You come to peace with God and also peace with others, and you are united to be part of a new family. And that's important. And he talks about this new family being described as one body, I love Ryan's reference often to the fact that uh, we as the church exist to put Jesus on display, to demonstrate the transformed love of Je- the transforming love of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. You heard that last week. But to do it, we've got to be one body. He goes on later in the chapter in, in verse 21 to say, in whom we are like, and he switches metaphors to a building. He says we're like, one whole building being fitted together. We're like Legos all fit together to build a building. But this building is a holy temple. Verse 21, chapter 2:21, A holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So we are a house for God to indwell. A body for God to indwell and do His stuff through. That's God's MO. That's His system for changing our world. So we are part of a global family of God. A few verses if you want to write them down. Ephesians 1, uh, as I mentioned earlier, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. All of this is to the praise of the glory of His grace. Why does He do this? Ephesians 2.10 that I already read. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We have a mission to accomplish. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 22, we grow into one body through the cross or we're built into one dwelling of God through the cross. And the image is we are part of something very, very exciting. That's why I'm saying you have new life by His grace. You have a new family by His grace. And then you have a new mission. And that's what the rest of this book begins to unfold is that mission side of us. They did ask if I would pause for just a minute and show you why, how, um, show you how what we believe about our church affects what we do as a church. The Congo team, I want to use it as an illustration. The Congo team is coming up, and uh, Bill mentioned it briefly. I want you to seriously pray for them. 
Uh, if you'd like to, you could give toward them by just writing Congo Team on a check memo. Just write the check to Seacoast. You can do that if you want. We don't need for all of you to do that. Our church helps fund much of this team, but every team member does have to raise their, their expenses to try to go on the team. Uh, most importantly, I'd like for you to write Pray for the Congo Team. Uh, if you don't give, I would love to invite every one of you to say, I want to sign up to be part of the prayer team. Because the prayer team doesn't just come on Sunday and get a report. All of you will get that free of charge. But if you sign up to be on our prayer team, you will get real-life uh, audio, video, and text updates kind of in real time. Hey, right now this is what we're doing. Would you please pray? So if you want to really get involved in praying for the Congo or Tanzania teams, you need to write Text in right now. I'll give you permission. Take your phone out and throw another text. Say, oh, already texted once today, but I want to either give or pray for the Congo team. What are we doing? Why, why do we go over there? Well, in Mwanza, Tanzania, first, Becky and I will go to do our first trip to North Tanzania. We've been to the southern part in Dar es Salaam. We're going to go to the northern second biggest city where there's a bishop who is inviting 20 denominations to bring some of their best pastors to be trained in how to, to lead their churches by biblical principles and lead their lives by biblical principles. So pray for that as we test out ministry in northern Tanzania. Then we fly over on the 13th of October and meet up. Uh, we'll, our team leaves here on the 13th. We'll meet up with them on the 15th actually in Kinshasa. 13 million people in Kinshasa, largest city in Congo, one of the largest nations in Africa. Prostitution is out of control, epidemic level. Why? Because so many young women, that's the only job skill they have to feed their babies. It's not they want to go out and be prostitutes. It's not that they want to sell drugs. It's not that they want to traffic in drugs and sex and all this kind of stuff. That's the lifestyle they are trapped in. And one of the things we offer, and I love Bill's summary, uh, through working with the Tabitha Centers, uh, the Tabitha Centers will help these pastors, uh, not pastors, <laughs> the, the Tabitha Centers work through the pastors in the local churches to bring English training, a job skill, and a Bible study about Jesus to these dear women. And God is using it to rescue dozens and dozens of women off the streets of Kinshasa. 2009, there was one of these centers with 30 women. By 2014, there was 12. This year, there are 41 and growing. So we're going to be privileged to take a team over to do training for 80 of the leaders and co-leaders of Tabitha Centers. And Doug and Lisa Neal and Jonathan, who have been trained in some of the the uh, recovery training and, and how to bring healing to wounds of the past. Can you imagine a room full of former prostitutes and women off the streets and the level of woundedness? So you have a chance to change one of their lives. I think that's cool. So God's giving us a, a very unique opportunity to train about 650 leaders and to work with 80 leaders of Tabitha centers and, and to just be involved in loving them in the name of Jesus Christ. But why do we do that? That's what I want you to not miss. We do it because they are family. They are part of the family of God that you're a part of when you come to Christ. 
the motto that we use when we go over to do our training, whether it's for pastors or for pastors' wives and women, is this motto, healthy pastors with healthy families building healthy churches can demonstrate the love of Jesus to any nation. So we want to try to help them be healthier by following biblical truth when most of them have a 7th grade education. Most of the pastors average a 7th grade education and no formal training. Some have more, some have less. That's the average. So I'm so thankful that Seacoast cares about Africa enough, not just to put a decoration on the wall over there, but to remind you every Sunday, you should be praying for Africa. It's where God is us investing a lot of our time and energy. Obviously, the people that go there do have to raise some money. It's kind of cool. I figured out the average pastor that goes through the training, it, even with, with the cost of the training conferences, uh, it averages about $23 per person to give them uh, several days of training. Each of our people that go have to raise about $3,000. So, you know, God provides the money. I'm more interested in us engaging our hearts with what's going on over there because it's your mission. You say, Dale, that's a pretty big dream to try to impact places like Congo and Tanzania. And, you know, we're not a huge mega church. But why do I believe we can really do this? It's this verse. And it's the end of the first half of Ephesians. Here's the verse. I want to invite you to read it out loud with me. Okay, let's go. Here we go. Out loud. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, it's not about us. It's about us saying, God, if you have given us opportunity to impact the literally the 75 denominations that represent the church in Congo, and if they're going to bring their very best leaders for us to train and, and some of their key women for us to train, then we're all in. Because that has a chance to have a ripple effect into every church throughout the nation. But there's a second half of the book. And I told you I'd cover the whole book, right? Well, here's why I said that. Second half is now verse 1. Walk worthy. Chapter 4, verse 1. Walk worthy of this kind of a grand new life, new family. Walk worthy. Live in response to that. Don't waste it. Don't waste the gifts of God. Live it out in your everyday world. What's that mean? Well, I've given it to you in your outline. I don't have to read it. Because in the second half of the year, we're going, to, we're going to look at how do you live for Jesus Christ, ready to serve, full of grace and truth, walking in love, full of real wisdom, wisdom for marriage, wisdom for families, wisdom for the workplace, all of that we're going to be studying the second half of the year or the first half of 2016. But I wanted to conclude today by coming back to where I think Paul comes to as he wraps up the book, and that's chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, he ends with this word. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, our battle, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and world forces of this darkness, 
against spiritual forces of wickedness, but they're in heavenly places. We don't see them, but they're there. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm in your faith. You see, what's he end with? He ends with a warning. The enemy is real and he is really dangerous. He is not greater than he who is in us, that is Christ and his spirit. But the very spirit of this chapter 6 is you're in a battle. And if you go walking through the dark alleys of Iraq, of Iran, of Syria, if you walk the dark alleys controlled by ISIS and you think that, well, it's not my war, are you safe? If you get up and put your shoes on and go to work here in the U.S., and you try to live and follow Jesus, and you want to walk with Jesus Christ, and you have your faith in Christ, you're part of the family of God, and you act like there is no enemy, you are at high risk of being taken out. Throughout the sermon, I mentioned several things. I mentioned the fact that if you want to put this into practice... Here's, one, here's just by review my closing reminders. Remember who you are and whose you are. That's chapter 1 of Ephesians. We'll start studying it next week. Remember you are a child of God. You're not just a person forgiven of your sins. That's only a small part of what it means to, to know Jesus Christ. You are forgiven, but you're a child of God. And you belong with new life and a new family to Him. Now, let's live that way. Remember who you are and whose you are. Chapter 1. Remember that this life in Christ is a walk, not a sprint or a marathon. So you can be part of the family of God. You can be used by God to help change your world, to change the lives of people in your world or in Africa if you take one small step at a time following Jesus Christ. So this is something for all of us. So decide today, I want to walk more closely with my God in the coming year. Third reminder, remember the goal isn't so much to go somewhere, even Africa. The goal isn't to go somewhere, it's to know someone named Jesus. Remember the prayer of the Father? I pray that you might know you might have wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of the riches of His grace. Because when you grow to really know your God, know grace, know Jesus, know what He did on the cross, the power of His resurrection, knowing Him is the greatest goal of this book. And last but not least, remember that it's all by and for the glory of His grace. It's all for the glory of His grace. Fifty-three thousand two hundred. Fifty-three thousand two hundred real names of real people will walk away from their faith or disconnect from the family of God this week.
is your name going to be on that wall? See, my prayer is that none of your names, that none of your names show up on that wall. That wall is real. You may not be able to visit it, but it's real. And every week, another 53,000 names are being added to it just in the U.S. and Europe. So make this a year in which you say, you know, Dale, I want to get more grounded in my faith. I want to go deeper. I want to use this study of Ephesians and, and use my life group I want to get into. And maybe I go through Rooted if you haven't done that yet. And you begin to join a team to serve because teams that are serving kind of watch out for each other. So join a life group, join a team. Because the greatest risk is to think that you plus Jesus need nobody else. Jesus himself disagrees with that. Pray, pray with me. Father, thank you for the wonderful teaching of this book, that we have new life by your grace, we have a new family by your grace, and we have a new mission to live it out every day, everywhere we go, to school, to work, locally, globally, to be a dwelling for God, to be the body of Jesus through which you can touch people with your love. So I pray that you would uh, make this a year in which you use the book of Ephesians to take us, um, not just on a trip, take us into war, Let us go to war with you. Let us conquer territory for you. Let us make a difference for you. And Father, I pray that not one person here at Seacoast would be a casualty. That's my prayer.